Hello and welcome. My guest today is Annie Duke. Annie is a former professional poker player and author. She holds a gold bracelet from the World Series of Poker in 2004. And at one point, she had won more money in World Series of Poker history than any other female. She is still in the top four of female earners as of September of 2021 despite being retired from poker for more than 13 years where her last tournament was played in 2010. She is also the author of three phenomenal books, Thinking in Bets, How to Decide, and most recently, Quit, that I've read, enjoyed, and highly recommend. And in this conversation, we spoke about how Annie got into poker in the first place, how to decide whether to quit or to stay in a relationship, and what she learned from her mentor in poker, Eric Seidel. I tremendously enjoyed this conversation with Annie. She is super wise. She is somebody, I read her book, Thinking in Bets, in the middle of the pandemic, so it was like 2020, and I was blown away by just how many aha moments I had. I'll actually link below my book notes from Thinking in Bets. So check those out. And my final ask from you is, if you enjoy this episode, you get to the end of it, share it with somebody you think will enjoy it as well. Whether that is through text message, Twitter, group chat, Instagram DM, Instagram story. When you share the show, the show grows. And when the show grows, I'm happier and I get enjoyment from watching this thing that I'm building grow to more minds and I appreciate you all tremendously. I was just at this My First Million event. So many incredible people coming up to me, letting me know that they enjoy the show as well. So thank you so much if you were one of those people. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get into the episode with Annie Duke. Annie, thank you for coming on the podcast. I've really admired your writing since 2020. I stumbled across Thinking in Bets and I was blown away. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Happy to be here. I figured we'd start with when your brother lost $6,300 of his college fund. What oh was gosh. that experience like for you? That's good research. Um. That was a very weird time. So uh, I feel like my brother um, really sort of learned poker through hard knocks, so I didn't have to in the end. So what happened was when my brother was in high school, he got he got really into chess, and he was a very good player. I mean, he's still a really good player. Um, and he was going around to chess tournaments and sort of had a plan to become, I mean, he wanted to become a grandmaster. So uh, during his senior year of high school, my, my the school that we went to had like a, what was called an independent study program. And those could, you could either do on campus or you could go off campus. So he went off during that winter to go study with a chess grandmaster in New York City as his ISP. And sometime during that time, he discovered poker. So there was this club called the Bar Point, which was on uh, Avenue of the Americas and 14th Street. And it was called the Bar Point because so in uh, backgammon, the the center strap is called the Bar Point. So if you, you can get put on the bar if you get hit. Um, so it was a backgammon club. But there was also like gin and chess and in the back room there was a little poker game that was quite something like this was in new york in the 80s and people would come in it was a very very small game if i recall it was three dollar six dollar limit dealer's choice and the players would come in on friday night sort of after workish. And then they wouldn't leave until Sunday evening. I mean, they would play all the way through. So there was like a lot of cocaine involved. And some, I, I think my brother sort of discovered poker at this time. And 
um, loved it. And then he determined, I mean, he was studying with the chess person too, but he determined that he was going to take a year off from class. So he was going to defer admission for a year. And he was going to go to New York and continue to pursue chess, which also ended up being more like pursuing poker. And the thing was that he was terrible at it. <laughs> so like he had never, it, it was a different time where like you couldn't just go on the internet and like watch trick Twitch streamers, you know, like playing poker, explaining what they were doing. There, there were a couple of books on poker and um, mostly written by like uh, David Sklansky and Mason Malmuth. Um, uh, Ray Z also had some stuff on like uh, eight or better. These are very old names, but um, so, but he didn't even really know about those books. So like, there was nobody like there was no you couldn't like oh i'm watching it on tv whatever so there was no way for him to like know how are you supposed to play poker so he was just you know figuring it out and uh he did that very poorly in the beginning and we each had had some college money that my grandfather had sort of you know been he'd been sort of socking it away in an account for us since we were born and it totaled to sixty three hundred dollars and um, yeah, my brother used that, I guess, to fund his poker education, meaning uh, he lost all of that playing poker in the back room of the bar point and then ended up. So he's not in college. He lost his college fund. Um, so he made an arrangement with the person who ran the game. And it's a totally illegal game, just by the way, um, uh, that he could like work the game so the thing is remember people were coming and they were playing for like 72 hours straight so they needed someone to go get them a slice of pizza or a sandwich or cigarettes or alcohol or whatever so he became a runner for the game and what would happen is and in exchange for that the guy at the bar point let him sleep there was a there was there were two rooms in the back one was set up as the uh poker game and then there was another room right next door to that that had like a futon in it. Um, and the guy let Howard sleep in that sleep in that room. So that was like an exchange for basically he was working for tips to run for this game. And then he, he could sleep next door on the futon. Um, and so then what happened from there is that every weekend he would run for the game and then from his tips he would get enough money to buy into the game remember it wasn't that big a game it was only three dollars six dollars so you could buy into that game for like a hundred bucks two hundred bucks so he would get enough money to play in the game and then he would sit down and he would probably lose it and then at some point i can't remember like i'll have to ask him he came across a, a poker book on hold'em by david sklansky and he read it. And the thing about my brother is like, he's a really mathematical guy. Like he was a great mathematical, like he, he did really well in math in high school. I mean, obviously like he played chess, like he's got that kind of mind. So when he actually read a book that was like, hey, here's some strategy and some game theory and how you might think about the game, given that he was playing against people who were staying up for 72 hours, completely cocaine addled, um, he, that was enough for him to actually do well in the game. Cause at that, then he actually knew more than they did and he started to make money in the game. And then eventually the game kind of disbanded because he made so much money in the game. So he went from, you know, losing $6,300 sleeping on a futon in the back room, running for the game to make enough tips to be able to get a buy-in together for the game to making enough money to actually sort of break the game. And then from there, he moved up to like a five and $10 game. He discovered No Limit also, and eventually ended up playing at the Mayfair, which was in um, New York. And it was a very famous club at the time. And what's amazing about that era is that if you look at the names that he was sort of growing up with in poker, it's actually super astonishing. So it's not just my brother, but Eric Seidel, who is a nine-time World Series of Poker champion, one of the greatest players that's ever played the game. Uh, Darren Harrington, 
who has won the main event of the World Series of Poker, uh, has more than one bracelet, very famously wrote Harrington on Hold'em, which is like one of the best books of the era. Um, I think may, has also made the final table um, of the main event quite a few times. And then uh, Jason Lester, who also is a World Series of Poker bracelet holder and uh, main event finalist, um, really, really great player. So when you, it was interesting because when you look at that era, there were a bunch of people who were all playing in that game and kind of exchanging ideas and learning together. And then you see what happened to that generation, and they really ended up dominating in a lot, a lot of ways the poker world for a long time. So at, a couple of questions based on that. One is like, at what point did he, your brother say to you, okay, you should come in and you should do this too in some way? Or was that a conversation? How'd that go down? How'd he bring you into it? So that was, that was kind of accidental. So what happened was, so when he was doing all of this at the bar point, um, for part of the time I was doing an independent study program. So I was a couple years behind him. And I, so I did an independent study working at Bellevue, um, which is the hospital. And they have a, they had a ward at the time for, um, kids who were autistic. And, uh, so I was doing that, but then I would come and see him obviously, cause he was in New York at the time. And I would sit behind him and, and watch him play. So, so I, and, and I would like, you know, I would sort of hear the talk and, you know, I met, I mean, I met Eric Seidel when I was 16 years old, same with Jason Lester and Dan Harrington. So I have known them for a really long time. Um, so I, I certainly like, I had some understanding of the game, but I hadn't played it yet. And then, um, then I went to college in New York and, you know, spent some time, like, again, I would watch him uh, uh, sometimes, like, sometimes I would go down and see him, and I would sit behind him and watch him, and the great thing about sitting behind him, sort of, like, the same as the whole card cameras was, he would, he would let me peek his cards so that I could actually follow the action, um, and so I think I was probably absorbing something during college, but, you know, th no intention of becoming a poker player, I mean, I had other plans for my life, then I went off to Philadelphia, um, to UPenn to study cognitive psychology and I was there for five years and during that time he started to offer me every May to because now at this point my brother's doing really well so by 23 so so just to be clear like what I'm talking about is he's like 17 18 loses his college fund ends up like breaking the game because he gets so good ends up at the Mayfair in sort of the higher limit games in New York in this sort of class of like, you know, Eric Seidel and Dan Harrington and Jason Lester. And then by 23, he, my brother makes the final table of the main event of the World Series of Poker, youngest player at the time to ever do that. No longer true, but at that time, that was true. Um, and so he's doing very well by now. And uh, so I'm in graduate school. I'm living on a National Science Foundation stipend. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't afford a vacation besides like going downstairs to do laundry. And he starts offering to fly me out during the main event of the World Series of Poker, which at that time occurred in late April. Um, it's now more like June, but at the time it was late April, May. Um, I remember because the main event was always on Mother's Day, which I thought was like very telling. Like th there really has never been, you know, very many women playing poker. And so um, the idea was like, who cares? Like there are you're not ruining any woman's day by having the main event on Mother's Day. But uh, so every year that was the day that it was on. And um, I, and so he would fly me out and put me up at the Golden Nugget, which was across from Binion's Horseshoe Casino, which is where the, the main event was at that time. It's not there anymore. It's at the, was it the Rio? I don't know if it's moved since then because I stopped playing in 2012. So I'm actually not sure where it is anymore, but it was at the Rio. But anyway, so it was at Binion's Horseshoe, uh, casino, hotel and casino. And I went across to the Golden Nugget, which was, you know, fancier, like he was putting me up at a fancier place. And I would get a vacation. And it would, you know, usually like one or two weeks, he would bring me out there and, um, you know, take me to, to the steakhouse in the basement of the Four Queens. And, you know, it seemed very fancy to me at the time. Um, but what I discovered pretty quickly was that uh, it was kind of boring. Because my brother was playing, but when he when you're playing in a tournament, which is what he was doing, because it was during the World Series of Poker, you're not allowed to do what I had always done, which is sit directly behind somebody in a chair 
where they can peek you their cards, right? So, um, so I, if I wanted to watch, I was standing on a rail that was like pretty far away. And so I actually couldn't see, I, I didn't know what my brother had. I, I didn't know what anybody had unless the hands got, uh, happened to get turned over. And that's really boring. It's why poker wasn't popular on television until the 2000s when they invented those little lipstick cameras. Because if you can't see any cards at all, it's really dull. So I remember I was complaining to my brother about it one night. Oh, they, and the other thing, just so you know, is I don't really like to gamble. So um, uh, I was I didn't really want to go play like Baccarat or craps or something like that. Like who wanted to do that? Plus I couldn't afford it. But I don't, I also don't just enjoy those games. So we were down in the basement of the horseshoe um, because if you waited till midnight at the horseshoe, they had a $1.99 steak special where you got like a steak, a potato, a salad, a vegetable, and bread for $1.99, which was amazing for me because I had no money. So um, so we were doing the steak special or whatever, and I just was complaining to him that I was kind of bored. And so he said, well, why don't you try playing poker? That's when, when he said, why don't you do this? And I was like, okay. And that was just for fun. Like that was just to stop the boredom. Um, and he wrote down on a napkin, a Binion's napkin, uh, here are the hands that you can play. And remember, I knew a little bit about the game because I've been sitting behind him. And he sent me across the street to the Fremont um, Casino, which let me tell you, was a dump. Uh, the restaurant was just a Carl's Jr. in there. There was no like, ooh, the, the steakhouse at the Four Queens. Like it, Anyway, there was a little game that was like a dollar to three right next to the Carl's Jr. Actually, there was a dollar to three. And I went and played that and I made a little money. And so that's what I would sort of do when I was in graduate school a little bit. It's like I would go and like this once a year kind of thing and I would play a little bit. So then if we flash forward to the end of graduate school, I'm going out to get job talks to become an academic and I get sick. So I've been struggling with a stomach disorder and I just got to the point where I just realized like there's there's no way that I can actually um, uh, that I can actually go and go out on these job talks like I, I end up in the hospital for two weeks and it was very clear that I needed to take some time off to deal with this health situation that I was having and I was going to go back out and do the college professor thing the next year. And um, during that time, I was, you know, I didn't have a job and I didn't have a fellowship now because I was taking time off from graduate school and I just really needed money. And I was just talking to my brother, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he pointed out like, well, why don't you just play poker? So I had had some success just on these fun trips. And he's like, I'll send you some money. And why don't you try playing poker? No, $6,300 <laughs> is how much my brother lost. I'm, yeah. No, he sent me $2,400. <laughs> $2,400. And um and there was a game that was nearby that was um a ten dollar twenty dollar limit hold'em game and the first month I won it was like twenty eight hundred dollars and wow um you know and I just said the thing is as I say like I mean my brother had lost all this money to learn how to play and then I had spent all this time absorbing him listening to Eric Seidel and Jason Lester, my brother and Dan Harrington have these conversations, be able to sit behind him. He let me ask questions like, why did you play this hand a certain way? Um, I had played a little bit myself. And I think that I just had such a leg up at that time because again, nobody had, there was no, I'm just going to go on the internet and like learn how to play and watch tutorials and get to see Twitch streamers who are playing, streaming their games you just you know it's kind of you had to figure out for yourself and I had a big help with a bunch of people who eventually became world champion ch champions helping me to to figure the game out and so I I just I think I you know I just knocked that whole first part of the learning curve off um by doing that so that's how I I mean it was very accidental so he he would have never said like oh you should quit school and go become a poker player it was you know it was life hands you lemons and uh you play poker. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that stands out from that entire story is just your deep intricacy and memory of all the facts. Have you always had that? Or is that something specific to poker or impactful moments in your own life? And how have you gone improving that? Or is it just a natural skill? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, so I, I have a very like visual memory. Mm. Um, so... If you ask me, like, as I'm telling you this story, 
I'm at the bar point and I'm I'm seeing the game. I'm seeing mm. the futon. Like I'm at the Mayfair. And, you know, there, when you walked into the Mayfair, there was a poker table over to the left. There were backgammon tables set up. They were kind of right in front of you. And I can kind of see it, right? There was a place called the Coterie um, where people would go and play backgammon chouettes. And I remember what it looked like. I can see it. So when I'm telling you these things, I'm just kind of describing what I see. Um, and that's true for poker as well. Like I can tell you hands and I know where I was when I played them. I know what seat I was, I was sitting in. I can see the cards on the table. I can see the players. Um, and so I imagine that that's probably just kind of the way that my brain works, but also uh, it's a good skill to hone for poker because poker is a very, it's a visual game with a lot of flow and where you're sitting in comparison to other people really matters. Um, what the order of the cards are that come down really matters. So the more that you can be storing that in that way, and sort of replaying those hands, I think it, it helps with your learning curve a little bit better. What do you do to improve it? I don't know. I mean, I think it was just repping it. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I've played thousands and thousands of hands of poker in my life. Makes sense. One name that kept popping up in my research and that you've mentioned a couple of times is Eric Seidel. Yeah. Why was he such an impactful person in your poker career and also your thinking career in terms of getting better at decision making? So the thing about Eric is, um, so there's there's a lot of things that are big traps in poker. Um, one of the biggest traps is actually just emotion. Hmm. Uh, you're playing a game where there it's very volatile. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of uncertainty and. Frankly, you, you can have a hand where you're 80% to win. And, you know, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing or maybe they do and they misread you or whatever, like they get all their, you know, you're all in for this big moment. And the fact is that 20% is going to occur 20% of the time. So you're going to observe that pretty frequently. One out of every five times that you play that situation, the cards are going to go against you. And it's emotionally very difficult, particularly because one of the interesting things about poker is that it's not fun if you're not playing for something that hurts. So if you're playing for pennies, you're not really going to be trying very hard. Like the fun of it is going to be coming from more the social aspect. Whereas like the fun from the poker itself, part of it is that you're playing for stakes that kind of matter to you. And what that means is that when that 20% happens, it's painful. And the fact is that if that happens two times in a row, 8%, you're going to lose them back to back. And 8% is a lot, right? Like you're going to observe that happening more than you think. You know, and once you get into these things where like you're a 60-40 favorite, look, you know, 40% is a lot. And then 16% uh, is a lot right? And so on and so forth. So uh, you're going to observe those sort of back-to-back -back bad things happening to you um, quite often. And what happens to people when that occurs is that they just get really emotional. I mean, not, I don't, and I don't mean people necessarily excluding me, like everybody, it's hard. It, you know, it feels like it's unfair. And Eric is just a master of that sucked. Move on. So I think that's one thing is that he really, I think he really, he he showed through his own actions and also the way that he would talk to you that allowing yourself to kind of live in that, that bad luck is just really not productive at all. And that if you allow that to get the best of you, you're going to lose. And if you, if you live in that, if you live in that place of here are all the bad things that happened to me, um, it's not just that your emotions are going to cause you to lose, but you're going to stop your ability to learn. Like you're just not going to get better because you're living in things that you're living in the, the space of the game that you don't have control over. So like there's two pieces to poker, the part you have control over, which is like, how am I betting? What are the sizes of my bet? How am I reading the other player? And then there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have control over, like the turn of a card. Hmm. 
And if that's what you're living in, if you're living in what you call the bad beats, which is the, the bad luck, um, it, it's going to stop you from actually being able to improve. And he was just so good at not only not living in that himself, but really in, in a way that was very forceful, challenging me not to live in that and to focus on the things that I could improve. So, I mean, you know, the thing that I talk about is he famously said to me when I was complaining about um, a sad, sad hand that had happened to me at my very first final table of the World Series of Poker, where I lost a hand that was where I was only 18.5% to lose for the chip lead with six people to go in the tournament. This was a very big deal. Um, and I was just sort of crying to him about it. I, not necessarily tears in my eyes. I mean, crying like moaning about it. Um, and I remember him saying to me, is there a question in here? Mm. And I thought, and you know, in the, at, at first I was like, oh, this is very rude. Um, because, you know, I'm complaining. You're supposed to have sympathy for me. But I realized, no, he's right. And he said, like, if there's not a question, why are you telling me about it? It's not going to help either of us. So um, I think that that was, it was such, he had such a big influence on me in that way of, of trying to figure out where's the learning. And if, if, if I'm not focusing on where's the learning, then, then I shouldn't be playing the game. It sounds like he was very good at not arguing with reality. And I think that so much of happiness and good decision-making is just looking at the way things are and not arguing with it and just yeah. saying, that's the way it is. All right. What's the next thing that I can do? When you look at your own life and the ways that poker has shaped it and created so much more knowledge and understanding about rationality, does it frustrate you or is it difficult when you see people interacting in the world or in your own personal life that don't exhibit the same level of rationality about and take some of the things that you've learned? Yes and no. I mean, kind of to the point of what I've been talking about with Tilt, I I really, it, it depends, I mean, first of all, it depends a little bit on how much of effect does it have on me. Hmm. Um, it's much more frustrating when it has a direct effect on me. I do try to really accept that not everybody thinks this way. Um, and that's okay. Like, you know, different strokes for different folks, right? Um, and, and I've tried to be much more accepting of people who aren't so, uh, you know, who are, who are living in kind of a different space than the way that I think about the world necessarily. Except if it has a direct effect on me, then it's very frustrating. Uh, so I, I, I just want to say that I do get frustrated by that. Um, look, I mean, I, look, I founded, co-founded, the Alliance for Decision Education for just this reason, right? To say people don't really, I had, I actually had an interesting conversation earlier today with somebody who said, who's working with teams and they said, um, the biggest problem I'm having is people don't really know what a decision is. Mm. And if you think about that, people really don't. It's like you have these free form discussions and meetings and I don't think people even realize that there's a decision that's being made, right? Or that they're even facing a decision. And, um, you know, so trying to get people to understand, like, what, what is a decision? How would you think about it? The world is probabilistic. You know, just because you had a good outcome doesn't mean you made a great choice and vice versa. Um, you know, those kinds of concepts, I think, you know, just even understanding, like, the idea of uh, the, so the idea of, like, base rates that there's always somewhere that you can start with your best guess hmm. right like the number of times that i'll hear from people where i'll say you know well let's say it's a client right and i say well what would you predict uh churn will be if you say don't deliver a feature right a software feature and they'll say well how could i possibly know and i say well if you're making a decision about whether to deliver or not it's included in your decision so maybe we should discuss it, right? Like those kinds of things that are just different ways of sort of thinking about the world and sort of really understanding like what is a decision? The world is probabilistic. What are base rates? Where do you start your guesses? How do you make a forecast? Those kinds of things. I mean, 
you know, I create a foundation to start teaching kids this stuff in kindergarten because I think the world would be a way better place if you did. So obviously I had enough of a frustration level to say, uh, I'm going to co-found this um, foundation to, to try to actually change the way we're thinking about how do we, how do we educate our children, right? Like, why are we teaching them mathematical formulas? You can look those up online. Why aren't we teaching them how to think about the world? You know, how to decide what you're supposed to do, how to make predictions about how things will turn out, how to understand how to close feedback loops, like stuff like that. Like, I think that would be a lot better. So, um, I mean, I'm frustrated, but I'm doing something about it. I love it. Who is Dr. Oslin Martinez? Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Dr. Oslin Martinez. And how does that play a role in what exactly you're talking about? Yeah. So uh, this is Dr. Olsten Martinez. Excuse me. Um, no worries. No worries. Um, so Sarah Olsten Martinez, it, she's, so she was an ER doctor. Um, and when I talked to her, she had been actually an ER doctor for about 15 years, but Along the way, she had gotten promoted to be a hospital administrator. Um, and she'd been doing that for quite a bit of time as well. And she reached out to me because she heard me on Maya Shankar's uh, podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. Um, and I was talking about quitting, which was the topic of my most recent book. Um, and this was like mid-writing. So I was talking to Maya about it. Uh, yeah, so what I'll do is when I'm writing a book, I'll do a, a podcast here and there just to sort of start to feel the ideas out. So anyway, Sarah Sarah had heard me and she reached out to me because she had a quitting decision. Um, and she was wondering whether she should quit her job as mostly a hospital administrator. She was still doing six shifts a month as an ER doc. And um, so I got on, I, I was, you know, I said, oh, good timing. I would love to talk to you. Why don't we get on a Zoom? So we did. And um, she basically started telling me about how much she hated her job. Um, and I, you know, sort of probing as to why, and a lot of it had to do with when she was in, when she was just working in the ER, it was shift work. So when she was done, she was done. She would go home. No, bring your homework, your work home with you, rather. But when she became a hospital administrator, it was like the twenty four seven barrage of like text emails and calls with emergencies that she was supposed to be fielding and what she found was that what she really loved was be being in the yard number one not being an administrator but the other thing was that it was really interfering with she felt like it was having a negative impact on her relationship with her children so um so i you know i was asking like how long has this been going on and she's like i've been miserable for three years but she said i have another job in the offing with an insurance company um, and I'm trying to decide whether I should quit and take that job. Um, at which point I was a little bit confused because I was like, she just told me like how incredibly miserable she's been for three years. I'm a little confused as to why she, she, we're on the Zoom for her to talk about whether she should quit. So uh, so I asked her and I said, well, why, why, what's the holdup here? Like, why don't you want to quit? And what she said was, well, what if I hate the new job too? Hmm. So this turns out to be actually an incredibly deep comment. Uh, it's in very, very common. Uh, she is not alone in this feeling. Um, I think that we all feel it with like relationships. What if I break up and then I can't find somebody new or the new person is terrible also? Um, you know, certainly with a job, with even in businesses with strategies, right? Like what if we switch and we go to a new strategy and that doesn't work out? So we hear this, this kind of talk all the time. It's very pervasive. And what you're hearing in that is uh, this asymmetric application of a concept called loss aversion. Um, so loss aversion is a concept that comes from uh, Dan Kahneman and Amos Tversky. It's a big chunk of prospect theory, which is what Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for. And essentially what it says is that uh, we focus on losses more than we focus on gains when we're trying to make decisions about what we should start. Um, and... In retrospect, once we get an outcome, bad outcomes, like bad things will outweigh good things by almost two times. So the way you can think about that is if you lose $50 playing blackjack, it will feel about as bad as winning $100 feels good at blackjack. So there's this asymmetry in the way that we're processing losses. But 
what I what what's particularly relevant here is this idea that we focus on the downside on the starting of things. So if I'm thinking about um, two different investments, so that's starting something, two different investments, um, I'll have a tendency to focus on only the losses that are associated, the potential losses that are associated with each investment, and I'll choose the one that has the lower potential losses. But what that's ignoring is the upside of the equation, right? So I could very well be choosing the worst investment because it could be that it has low losses associated with it, but also very small gains associated with it, with the other one, which has bigger losses associated with it might have outsized gains associated with it, right? So at which point the expected value of, of that um, investment would be better and I would want to invest in that. So that's loss aversion. So it turns out that we apply loss aversion asymmetrically to uh, the status quo or the things that we're already already doing or to the new thing. And the reason is that remember, we recruit loss aversion into our decisions to start things. So once we started something like Sarah Olston Martinez's job, we don't think every morning that we're starting it fresh. Even though we kind of are, right? Like we're choosing that morning to go back into work. We're not, you know, we're not choosing to leave, but we don't think about it as a fresh decision. I, I think the best way that you can see that is what in stock market investing, we think about buy, sell, and hold, mm -hmm. except hold is the same as buying. But we have a different word for it, which is you already own it. So we're not thinking about it as a buy decision anymore. We're thinking about it as this different category, which is maintaining the status quo. So because loss aversion is recruited into starting decisions, what that means is that we get focused on the losses for something that we're thinking about switching to in a way that we don't focus on the losses for something that we're already doing. And what this does is it prevents us from stopping things that we're already doing in order to start something new because we're afraid that the new thing isn't going to work out. So that's irrational because if the thing you're doing isn't working, then, and the thing that you're thinking about switching to has a higher chance of working for you, you should obviously want to switch. And the fact that we're loss averse in this way actually slows our progress down because we stay in jobs we hate for fear that the new job won't work out. So what I said to Sarah Olsta Martinez in order to sort of help her to overcome this issue was, okay, imagine it's a year from now and you've decided to stay in your current position. What's the probability that you'll be happy? And split second, she said zero, zero percent. Why is it zero percent? Well, she'd already been unhappy for three years. Like she'd already sort of tried everything to try to make it better. So there was no reason for her to think that this was going to be any better. So then I said, well, okay, now imagine you take this job with the insurance company. What's the probability it's a year from now you're happy? She said, oh, I don't know. I said, well, just take a guess. And she said, 50-50. And I said, well, is a 50% chance of happiness greater than zero? And she said, yes. And it was like, it was really interesting. Like if you had seen the video of this, her she's sort of lit up at this. Like it was like this light bulb, like she got it. And she quit the next day. And last time I checked in with her, she was much happier. But it's probabilistic anyway. I mean, probabilistically, she was going to be happier than whatever she was doing at that time. So, I mean, I think that her story so encapsulates really so much of the problems that we have in the way that our thinking can become really biased. And, you know, why it's so hard for us to stop things that aren't working for us, which is a really necessary skill to develop. You know, how do you get stuck in a job like that for three years that you really hate. Well, because you're worried that if you switch to something new, you'll hate that too. But that's, you know, that's obviously not rational if you already know that you hate the thing you're doing. It's, it's so interesting that even when we are not doing something that we don't like, it becomes part of our identity. Okay. And the fact that it's part of our identity puts it there's like a filter there that makes it more difficult for us to actually make a decision. And then you said like, if there's one thing you learn from writing the book, it's that the hardest thing to walk away from is who you are. Right. And so for her, it must've been very difficult because who she was felt like she's a doctor and she's in this field. And so it's like, that's hard to walk away from the status, the prestige, and also just, this is who you are. So how do you change yeah. who we are? So, when we think about like our identity, we can think about our identity as both internal and external. The way that we view ourselves and the way that we think other people view us. And and in her story, actually, you saw this where 
uh, you know, separate and apart from maybe I'll hate the job. She also had a lot of stuff of like, you could see some some cost stuff. Like I've been training, you know, I trained for so long in this. I went to medical school, you know, won't that have been a waste? Uh, would it have been a mistake for me to start? Like these kinds of things that have to do not just with like some things that would firmly go in co the cognitive bias world, which would be like the sunk cost effect, which is taking into account what you've already spent, deciding whether to continue and spend more, which isn't just money, but also like time spent training, which she was talking about. Um, but also internally, we can get into the more identity or motivational forces um, that have to do with our idea. What It's called internal validity which comes from an idea that where our decisions are consistent over time. And so if we choose to do something and then choose to stop, what does that mean, right? Like now all mm. of a sudden you, you're you not sort of a consistent person because you're walking away from that identity. And what does that mean for you? Does it mean that you were wrong in the first place? Does it mean that you're still the same person? Like these things are actually quite hard for us. And, you know, there's been a lot of work in, in the area of something called cognitive dissonance which is um, it, more in sort of the belief area can happen. It can be with actions too, but belief is where we can really think about it, where if I hold some sort of belief and then the world gives me information that that belief is no longer true, right? I now have, it creates a lot of dissonance, right? So the world is now in conflict with my belief system and my beliefs are who I are, am. I mean, what are you besides the things that you believe, right? Hmm. And now I've got this really uncomfortable feeling of this conflict occurring. And there's two ways for me to resolve that conflict. One is to change my belief, right? To make my belief form, conform with what the world is telling me. And the other is to reject the facts, but maintain the consistency of my beliefs. Hmm. And we choose that all the time. And you can see that in political discourse, right? All the time where it's like, oh, you said that you believed this, but now that it's someone in your party, you're excusing it. Right. So those types of like rationalizations are maintaining your identity. It becomes paramount. And this is true even in very extreme cases, like members of cults who believe that aliens are going to come uh, flood the world on a particular day and that day doesn't happen and they don't quit the cult. Right. And it's because like, well, what does that mean? Like I've, ta I've put the stake in the ground of like who I am and what I believe. And if that's not true, I need to resolve that conflict some way. And so what I'm going to say instead is that I prayed so hard that the aliens didn't come, right? Or something like that. So that's on the internal side. Then we also, and Sarah Olson Martinez was definitely talking in that type of language. And then there's also external validity. How, are, how do other people view us? Do they view us as valid people? Do they view us as consistent? Do they view us as good decision makers? These kinds of things. And what she said was one of the things that was making her afraid to quit was that she felt that her fellow ER docs would think that she was a wuss for walking away. So there's this big culture around sort of grit and sticking with it and that kind of stuff among ER docs. And, um, you know, she was afraid that they were going to think less of her, that they were going to really judge her pretty harshly um, from the outside looking in. And so that's that piece of her identity that comes from the way that we believe that other people are viewing us. And both of those things make it very, very hard to walk away because they both have to do with consistency over time, right? Like that's what we're sort of trying to uh, maintain is that the, the things that we decide are correct. The actions that we choose to uh, engage in are virtuous. And we think that both for ourselves internally, but also hoping in the way that other people will view us. How can we get better at identifying the decisions that we don't even know we're deciding. Uh. Like Dr. Martinez didn't know that she was, she had a decision at that moment, but she did. So right. it, it was a blind decision. How do we get better at illuminating those? Yeah, I think that, so, I mean, it, it's such a good question, right? And, uh, it's it's a that's a tough nut to crack. Um, one of the things that I'm a really big fan of is a lot of advanced thinking. So, uh, and I think that that's incredibly helpful. So I, I think the problem is that when we're in the moment, we, our minds are really agile. And when we're caught up in it, that's the term that Daniel Kahneman uses, being in it. 
Um, we're not particularly rational. We often don't even recognize that we're at a decision point. We don't stop and think. Um, that's when we're most likely to rationalize in order to get rid of like this type of discomfort. It's when we're most likely going to be sub- subject to cognitive bias. But when we're actually um, not in the moment, like when we're thinking in advance, we tend to be much more rational. When we're seeing other people do things, we can see that they they have a decision to face, even if they don't see it, or we can see when they're subject to ra- um, irrationality in a way that where if we were in that situation, we wouldn't be able to see it for ourselves. So one of the things I'm, I'm just a big fan of is is recognizing like, look, we're not perfect and we're never, we're going to be very far from it. And we're going to all do all sorts of stupid things that if we had stopped and taken a moment, maybe we wouldn't have done such a dumb thing. But how do we actually reduce how often that's occurring? And that's with the advanced thinking. So for example, when it comes to uh, walking away from things. So if we take um, sort of like all the things that make quitting hard, and I'd put you 300 feet from the top of Everest, all of those things are going to pile up on top of you. Um, what will people think of me if I've come this far and I turn around? So that would be sort of the external validity. What will I think of myself, right? I'll have wasted the $100,000 and the months of training that I put into getting up here. Um, uh, this way that we process progress where the 29,000 feet that you just climbed in, the air doesn't count, but the fact that you're 300 feet short of your goal is now you have to walk away what we call in the losses, right? Like not ever having been able to attain that goal, which is incredibly hard for us to do. So there, there's all these things that are going to make you continue up, even in, in spots where it's like super dangerous for you to continue up the mountain. And that's why there's so many books written about expeditions that continue up in bad conditions, obviously to disastrous effect. Um, but if I can get you to think in advance, right, which is, so imagine things don't go well, right? Like, why do you think things didn't go well? And then we can start listing those things out and we can come up with a set of criteria they're going to help you recognize these decision points. So first of all, we can we can create some stop and think moments and say, you know, every certain amount of time you need to stop. You need to think about what your situation is. We can do that. We could also say, look, you don't want to descend the mountain in darkness. So on summit day, no matter where you are at 1 p.m., you have to turn around. Uh, that's another thing you could do. Uh, we could set levels for your oxygen. We could uh, look at weather forecasts and the probability of bad weather and we could set benchmarks for what visibility would have to be Um, and we can create this list of things a checklist really of things that you have to now think about which we would call kill criteria where if you butt up against those you you have you we've already sort of decided in advance that you're going to have to stop and turn around and those types of things don't make you perfect at those decisions, but they really improve the probability that you're going to make a better decision um, in the moment because we've actually made those decisions in advance. And I think that that's actually one of the most helpful ways for people to get better at any type of decision is actually to think in advance about what the decisions are that you might be facing and then imagine what the circumstances might be that you might be facing at those moments and figure out how you're going to react to those things in advance. How does that practically look for somebody who's in a relationship or at a job? Most people won't be climbing Everest, but they will. Yeah. They have a job or they have a relationship. Should they be thinking about like at specific times? Like how would you suggest going about doing that? Yeah. So, um, you know, let, let's take a job, right? It would be really helpful for you to just sort of generally think about what are, what are your goals in the job? Um, what are the things that you're trying to achieve? Um, what type of feedback are you looking for? What type of culture do you want? Um, think about it. If Sarah Olsen Martinez had done that, she might have quit earlier because everything was butting up against what the thing was that she thought, you know, that she was really looking for in a job. Like, I don't want to bring my work home, as an example, right? Well, she was bringing her work home for quite a long time. So we can we can think about that generally. Um, and we can, or we can think about like, what how much advancement do we want, right? And we can, kind of go into it saying, you know, if I don't make it to this level or I don't get a promotion by this time or then then I'm going to reevaluate and walk away. 
Um, so that would be kind of like just sort of generally doing that. But a lot of times the great time to do this is actually that first moment where you sort of feel like, I'm not sure if I'm happy in this job. So for, for Sarah, that would have been three years before she talked to me, where you have that first moment of saying, I, I don't think I like this. I'm not sure that this is for me. Um, and that's actually a great time to sit down and say, all right, I'm not happy in this situation right now. And this would obviously work for a relationship as well. Um, I'm not happy in this relationship right now or this job right now. Um, how long am I okay with the situation as it stands? So that's question number one. So one of the things that's really important is for decisions of any kind is to set a deadline because the problem is otherwise you can always make it tomorrow. Right. So, so you really want to set a deadline. So let's say that you say, I'm okay with this, the situation as it stands for three months. Right. So this, if this looks like this for three months, I'm okay. So now you have a deadline, which is the end of three months. Then what you would do is say, okay, let me imagine it's three months from now and I'm still miserable. What does that look like? What are the signs that I'm miserable? If I think about what the early signals are, that it's going to continue to go that way. And you would essentially write those down. So those are going to be your kill criteria. Right. So if it's like I'm having conflict with my boss, I'm not getting good reviews. I don't feel fulfilled in my work. I'm dreading going to work in the morning, whatever it might be. So you write down what those things are, right? And then you say, imagine it's three months from now and things have really turned around. What does that look like? Okay, so now you've got two sets, right? A success set and a and a failure, well, not a failure, but a quit set. So here's, this is what it's gonna look like to be successful. If those things are happening, I will stay. This is what it looks like if it's unsuccessful. If those things are happening, I will quit. And then what you ask yourself, and this is the, the important last step is, if I look at this successful world, what do I need to do in order to make that happen? Because the thing that you don't want to do is say, I'm okay with the status quo for three months. Here's what success looks like. Here's what a bad version of that world looks like. And now I'm going to just let the world happen. Because you are an agent in your own life. So then you would say, okay, what do I need to do to actually get to this good world? So if we were to think about a relationship, it could be sit down and have frank conversations with your partner. Tell them what a good world looks like for you. Ask them what a good world looks like for them. See how that works together. Maybe go see couples counseling. Whatever it might be, you can now figure out how can I actually move the ball toward that good world, right? And then you have your deadline. And if in three months it's bad or six months or whatever your deadline is, then you've already committed that you're going to walk away. And this is going to help you to have a lot of clarity around these things so you don't end up in Sarah's situation where it's three years later and you're still miserable. And you've been miserable for a long time and the signs have been there for a long time and you haven't been able to walk away because you always think maybe it's a problem with me or maybe it's going to get better. Having the, that, that framing is so, so helpful and I'm so grateful for you for breaking it down like that. When you think about everything you've written, I, there's so many places that I, I want to take this conversation, but I know we're limited on time. So I'm curious, like, what what do you want people to feel or understand when they finish one of your books? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I would say the overarching theme across all three of them is what I want people to really understand is that the world is uncertain that we're all subject to luck um, over which we have no control. And that there's always, whenever you start something, you're not gonna have all the facts. You're, you're, it's gonna be a situation where you have incomplete information. So that's a sort of thing number one. And that, that's, I, I would say, was like the, really what I was trying to get across in thinking and backs, right? Is like, look, things are uncertain. There's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know and you don't, and, and even so, like what, what we started off talking about, if someone's going to win the hand 20% of the time, they're going to win it 20% of the time. You don't have any control over that, right? So we need to understand like there's a skill portion and a luck portion, and we really need to really embrace that and stop pretending that we are more certain than we are. Because if we can accept the uncertainty of the environment in which we have to decide, then our decisions are actually going to get better because we're gonna accept that the world is probabilistic and we're gonna be trying to make better forecasts within that system, right? So that's, 
that's kind of thing number one is like there's uncertainty um and then thing number two is really this idea that if there's so much uncertainty when you start things what that means is that after you start them you're going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff that's just the nature of the beast and sometimes the stuff you learn is going to be bad news but here's the great thing is when you get that bad news you can quit and you can go do something else um and this is that's a theme that gets picked up both in how to decide my second book and then obviously gets really bloomed it's a small portion of how to decide and then it blooms into a whole book once we get to quit and you know, we we really have a bias towards saying, you know, stick to it and you'll succeed um, and that that's the road to success. But the problem is that when you start something and think about it, like when you start a job, what the hell do you know about your job? Right. Like you've had a few interviews and you've talked to some folks. You've never done the job. You haven't been in the company. You don't really know what the culture is. You don't know if you're I mean, you don't know if there's a toxic coworker or uh, that, you know, that. They're, everybody's sending emails on weekends and you don't actually, that's not the life for you or nobody's sending emails on weekends and that's not the life for you. Whatever it is, right? Like you have no idea. You're making your best guess. So how could it possibly be that sticking to it is the only way to success? Because if you take that job and then you discover pretty quickly there's a toxic coworker and they're emailing you at two in the morning you know, and you're not getting, you, nobody ever gives you feedback around here and there's no clear guidance and nobody even knows what, like, what's what, and you freaking hate it, then how is that going to help you to succeed to stay in that situation? It's like people ask me all the time, what, how, how should I do a podcast? I say, pick a number and just do it for that number and then decide if you like it, if you don't. Right. And that's what I did. But I think when it's not a creative pursuit or it's not something that you personally are deciding to do, like a job where it feels like an authority is coming in, it feels like it's a forever thing or you have to commit right. fully. But it's interesting. knows it's not. Of course. Of course. So look, if you want to be successful, once you've discovered the information, that's where you have this decision. If, it, if, the, if the news is good, stick to it. Right. If you try the podcast enough to get a good sense of it and it turns out like it's good and you're growing viewership or maybe, by the way, maybe nobody's listening, but you don't care because you like the conversations. That's the way right? it was like, for me. That's the thing. Right. It's like these are about your values. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about those kill criteria for one person, it might be I want to get active daily listeners to go up by this amount. per. So that might be what they care about. For other people, it's like I don't care. If I'm rating it as fun for me, as long as it's fun for me, I'm good, right? So that's all fine. That has to do with what your values are. Nobody should tell you what success is for you. That you get to decide that. But once you get the information, if it is success for you, stick to it. Yes, mm -hmm. don't quit it just because it's hard, right? If it's worth it, stick to it. But if it's not worth it, don't stick to it. And you need both things in order to deal with the uncertainty and be successful because you have to know to, what to do with the information that you get post starting something. And because otherwise, if you just take it like, you know, quitting is for losers and sticking to it is for heroes, then when you're up on a mountain 300 feet from the summit of Everest and a blizzard rolls in, how are you ever going to turn around? And of course you should turn around in that situation. You're going to die. Right. And that's true for whether it's a strategic initiative or a podcast that you've started or a job that you've taken or a product that you're developing or whatever. Right. Like when you when the news is bad, turn around because otherwise you that will create the opposite of success. Annie, I like to end these podcasts with challenges. A challenge okay. points to the place in your heart you believe you can challenge someone to take something that they've learned or something we haven't covered yet to do something in their actual life to improve it. Does a challenge come to mind? Yes. The challenge is uh, the next time that somebody says to you they're thinking about quitting or you're thinking about quitting, say, wow, that's amazing. Super heroic. Love that. Because you, I'm challenging everybody to start thinking about quitting as an act of heroism. Because mm. we think about grit as the heroic act. 
But here's what I want you to imagine, Danny. Imagine you're 300 feet from the summit of Everest and there's a bunch of people still going up that mountain, but you see the snowstorm rolling in. So you're, you're going to try to make a good decision here and turn around, but you know everybody else is going to go up and you're worried about going home and having people tell you what is wrong with you. Like you spent all that money. Why would you turn around at that point? You're such a wuss, right? And maybe other people are going to make it to the summit and think about how terrifying that is. Think about how terrifying it is for anybody who's in a relationship to walk away when they don't know what the next relationship is going to be. You're wandering into the unknown, the abyss of ambiguity. That's really hard. If you quit your job, it's the same thing. If you're, if you're a startup founder and you have to shut your, your startup down, you have to worry about, well, what are people going to think of me? What, what is going to be my next thing? Those are all really hard things to do. So I know that we think about grit as heroism, but you know what? Continuing up the mountain, that you know everybody's going to pat you on the back for. It's the turning around that's actually really hard. And I think that we have to say to people when, you know, they shut their, they shut something down or they walk away from a job or they walk away from a relationship. You know what? That was really heroic. That's what I want people. That's, that's the challenge that I would give to people. I love that so much. Thank you so much for everything you do. Quit by Annie Duke, available everywhere, as well as Thinking and Bets and How to Decide, both tremendous books. Thank you so much for your work, and we'll have all your social links down below. Thank you.